The New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. Hear the word of the Lord. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, church. Uh, Father, we uh, commit this passage of Scripture to you, Lord. It is sobering and it's hard. Uh, and we long to learn from it, Lord, and, and uh, to see you, by your Spirit, hit right where each one of us need, custom-made to our own hearts, our, our own denials, our own need for grace. And Father, for you to be that exact with the people in this room, Lord, it can't be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, uh, the BFG. How many of you guys have seen the movie, the BFG, came out a couple years ago, Roll doll book, okay. Um, uh, there's this, there's this uh, the main character is a big, friendly giant, BFG. That's, I guess, his name. And um, his job is to collect uh, collect dreams. So um, he collects, the dreams are pictured in the, the kind of, they're in these jars here, you see. The dreams are pictured as these um, pleasant, soft, kind of playful lights, and he captures these dreams, and then he'll, He'll uh, implant them into kids' heads at night when they, when they sleep, and um, uh, he'll, he'll label the jars. He also catches these, um, these nightmares. They're pr- pictured as these cancerous, red, spindly kind of glow things. You see that in the bottom right corner. Um, the worst of them he calls troggle humpers. He has a lot of interesting words that he uses throughout the movie, but that's one. Um, and when he catches a dream or a troggle humper, he puts it in one of these jars, and then he puts a label on it, and he writes. The label is kind of the, the theme or the plot of the dream. So he might write on it, um, uh, in, uh, helping the president and impressing my dad at the same time, or I'm flying, or kittens, or something like that, right? He'll write that on there. But there's a point at which... The BFG needs to uh, wage war against nine other giants. These are much bigger than he is. They're much more evil. They eat children. Um, really wonderful children's movie. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, long story short, um, <laughs> he has to mount the worst possible attack on them so that, and this is honestly where the movie lost me, so that the Queen of England can send in some helicopters and whisk them off to some island. If you understand that part of the movie, come, please explain it to me later. But um, kind of lost me there. But he has to conjure the worst possible attack to kind of debilitate them so that the Queen can come in and save the day, right? And the label on the bottle of the worst nightmare, the strongest Troggle humper, right? The, the most powerful attack that the BFG can muster, the label says this, look at what you has done and there be no forgiveness. That is the worst attack on a giant or on a human soul. Look at what you has done and there be no forgiveness. Guys, in each one of us, I, I am confident there is a dark moment that if we had to spend a couple of hours just lined up and we'd wa- each walk up on stage, stand at this podium and share our dark moment, it would be the last we would ever see of you. You'd never come back because it's hard enough for you to, to face that moment yourself, let alone to admit it to, to other people, right? The shame of that moment, you know, we can just, we feel it just even as we think of the moment, we cringe, right? And if this story was all that we had of Peter, we would see him exiting the plot exiting the narrative just like Judas did. He would exit as a failure, as a turncoat, as a prisoner of his own shame by Peter. End of story. But Mark sets this story up intentionally to draw attention to something else. He wants to draw attention to hope. And he gives us another one of these. We've been talking about this through the series. We call it a Mark sandwich, right? A Mark sandwich is where it's a technique that Mark uses, a literary technique, where he, he'll take a story and he'll insert another story right into the middle of that story. And the story in the middle helps you understand better what's happening on either end of it, right? In other words, as Charles McKnight said a couple weeks ago, it's what's in the middle that defines what the sandwich is, right? Um, The bread, we understand better what it is. When we understand what's in the middle, we understand what kind of sandwich it is. So in verse 54, we see Peter by the fire, and we come back to him in verse 66 and find out what happened at the fire, but in between, what we're meant to see is that the story in the middle is big enough for uh, for, uh, for Peter's failure. The story in the middle, Jesus' story, 
is big enough for Peter's failure. So we want to look at the center story of Jesus' trial, then we're going to look at the bread, we'll look at Peter's story, but then I want to make sure that we, uh, we look at uh, how Peter would have interpreted his story in light of that middle story. And so uh, by way of an outline, let's do this. We'll call it grace under pressure, failure under pressure, and then failure under grace. And where we see um, grace under pressure is in Jesus in this story at his trial, and I use the term trial very loosely. <laughs> um, the events recorded here are so out of protocol that there are those who have said that this couldn't even be considered a trial. Uh, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, this is a powerful, the powerful Jewish council. It's 70 men, mostly Pharisees and Sadducees, plus the high priest, and um, they have lots of authority. They have full authority in Israel over religious law. They have a lot of authority um, over uh, criminal law, too. They can order arrests. They can try most cases. But if it's going to be a capital case, if it requires a death penalty, they're going to get concurrence from a Roman court. They have to get that from the Roman system. So um, as we've seen throughout this book, let's just remind ourselves, the, the people in charge don't like Jesus. <laughs> uh, they've pointed this out at very many points, right? They, um, they don't like Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sin. Uh, they don't like the way he hangs out with sinners. They don't like his views on fasting, don't like his views on ceremonial washings, they don't like uh, his Sabbath practices. It says by chapter 3, by chapter 3 of the book, they've already decided that he needs to be eliminated, but he's a northern problem right now, he's a Galilean problem, except just last week he kind of strolled into Jerusalem and now he's on their doorsteps. And it's a bigger deal now, the, the stakes have been, have been amped, and Jesus seems to even be provoking them. He kind of comes in in a parade with a donkey. He's trying to, you know, there's a fulfillment of, of prophecy there. And then he comes, he t- tips up a bunch of tables in the, in the temple and he tells stories where he's the true son and the, the guys in charge are the, are the hired hands. He's poking them. So this has gotten heightened and they have plenty of material over the whole course of the gospel that they might try to use to complain about him or to arrest him or to say that there's something wrong here. But they want something that can get him a death sentence because they don't want to deal with him again. One and done. Something that Rome would agree warrants death. They've they got to find a charge that will stick in, in, in that sense. But in their frenzy to convict, in their, in their frenzy to find that, there are so many shortcuts here. There are so many corners being cut that it's hard to even call this a trial. Um, They're breaking the law repeatedly to expedite Jesus' execution. There's um, the Mishnah, the the Jewish Mishnah, lists, among other things, uh, rules for a trial. And um, here's a few that are interesting. Um, Number one, a trial can't be held at night. Wow, right? This is the only recorded instance of a trial being held at at night. Secondly, um, a trial cannot be held on a feast day or on the eve of a feast day or a Sabbath. We're right in the middle of the Passover, on this one, right? Um, a trial must be held in one of three designated courtrooms. Guess what? Caiaphas's living room is not one of the three designated courtrooms, right? Um, this this uh, church that I'm showing you a picture of is actually, it's, uh, it's in Jerusalem. It's called the uh, Church of um, uh, St. Peter at um, Galakentu, in Galakentu. Galakentu, by the way, means cock crow. And if you look at that cross at the top, you'll see a, a rooster weather vane silhouette there. That's very intentional, right? Um, they have gotten Jesus off the grid. They've taken him to a private location, a less conspicuous location, so that they don't have to worry about the crowds getting involved in this. There's plen- uh, there, there's a, that is the pretty definitive location right there. That church is, is where 
Caiaphas's house was. So we know that that's, there's where the trial took place right there. Guess what? Not an authorized location, okay? Uh, number four, a trial must begin by hearing a case for the defense who is usually given a defense attorney, neither of which happened with Jesus. Number five, there must be at least two witnesses whose accounts agree fully, and we see them trying to do this. But if discrepancies uh, exist in their depositions, even on trivial matters, you have to throw, uh, they're inadmissible as as evidence. Um, And then, in capital cases, a verdict cannot be rendered on the same day that the trial begins. They want you to have at least one night to sleep on it before you render a death sentence. Ridiculous, right? And what bothers me most of all, honestly, is verse 55. It says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Imagine hearing that in the Charlotte Observer about a case here. Guys, they have the verdict already. They're just looking for a case for it, right? This verse says they've got the verdict before they've got the evidence. They have drawn their conclusions already. Now they're just looking for data to support it. They've already got their verdict. This is a a verdict in search of a case instead of the other way around. Guys, yeah, we have to ask. Uh, And I was told between services there's more. Uh, Jeff Levinson was sharing some more things. He remembers about the high priest. So many corners being cut here. How could they do that? I'm sure they would likely tell themselves this is for the sake of national security, right? This is for the good of the people. But it's stunning, I think, a couple of things within the text. We're able to read this in John. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness because they, uh, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. We find out later that um, they asked the Romans to break the legs of the men on the crosses so that they'll die quicker and their bodies won't still be hanging around on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a holy day. Guys, there's no way around this. They are hurrying this trial along so that they can still make it to church. Think about that. And while we're stunned, we're stunned at that, this is a huge warning to us that we can put a lot of religious dressing on our bad actions. We can live six days a week like there is no God, but then on Sunday, we're here, we're in our chair, we're singing the songs, we're acting like God's somebody important to our lives. We might have yelled at our family the entire drive here, and when we leave here, we'll probably yell at them the whole way back. You might have been dishonest all last week at work and you got no intention of changing tomorrow. But here we are on Sunday. We're singing the songs. We're acting like Jesus means something to us. That is a solid Sanhedrin mindset. Let's hurry up and kill this guy so that we can still make worship, so that we can still make it to the church on time. If external religiosity was what made you a Christian, these guys are in, right? If, if worship attendance is, is what got you to heaven, yay for these guys, but we know better. So they're looking for a chart that they can hang a death sentence on, and they almost get him on this comment about the temple. Uh, there's a couple of guys that uh, are trying to remember what he said about the temple, but even then it's wrong. They've misquoted him. This is what he said in John 2. He said, destroy the temple, and I will raise it again in three days. He didn't say that he was going to tear down the temple, uh, that Rome's going to do that in about 37 years. Uh, but uh, this might be the equivalent of saying bomb on an airplane, right? You have to take it as a credible threat. Maybe he poses a threat to a national landmark, which is illegal in the entire Greco-Roman world at that time. But even then, these two witnesses, they can't get their facts straight, which makes sense because they're both wrong, right? 
Uh, and Jesus never says, it's interesting, he never says, hey, guys, you're misquoting me. That's not what I said. You know what I said was, you know, check out John 2.19. That's what I said, right? He doesn't defend himself. I also think about this, that he could have said, you know, guys, it is cute how you are all trying to figure out, like, you know, how to frame me with something, and I'm just enjoying listening in. Y'all just keep talking. I'll just be right over here just, you know, smiling because nothing is sticking, right? But he doesn't do that, and in fact, instead, he gives them what they want because they can't figure it out. He says, you want a charge against me? I will give you a charge. I will reveal my true nature to you. You ask if I'm the Messiah? Here's my answer. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Guys, he's drawing from two places there. Psalm 110, verse 1, and uh, Daniel 7, 13. You can look those up uh, later on your own, but what you need to know is that both passages there paint the picture of a sovereign judge who has full authority and dominion and glory. Honestly, in that passage, the claim of Messiahship is the least shocking thing that he said in that sentence. In fact, claiming to be the Messiah was not a capital offense. But he's claiming a lot more than that here. He's claiming that he is sitting beside God, that he is representing God, that he is from God, that he is God. That's what he's claiming here. What he's really claiming is, from those passages, he is the holy judge of all the earth. R.C. Sproul says it this way, he was letting them know that this would not be the last time that they would meet in the context of a trial. He would be back with all the authority of heaven and he would judge them. He's saying when he says this that the true judge of all the earth is the one on trial right now and the guilty ones are in the judge's seats. You know, when we've gone through this book, we've seen that Jesus has kept his messianic claims pretty secretive up to a point. He didn't even tell the disciples really until chapter 8. And he's then kept that, that conversation amongst the disciples, but now it's public record. This is the first time. It's public record here. And we see the whole justice system ignored here again because now the Sanhedrin realize that they have a slam dunk conviction and they hit him and they spit on him. And I, I hope you guys caught the irony in this. They say, go ahead, prophesy. Do you get the irony in that? As they are saying, go ahead, prophesy, prophecy is being fulfilled. All kinds of prophecy. Here's a couple of them. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, uh, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Mark 10, Jesus had just said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. I picture Jesus going, you want me to prophesy? I already have. You're fulfilling it right now. And more amazing, Jesus' most recent prophecy is also coming true just around the corner. Right? right where Jesus is showing his grace under pressure, we see Peter exhibiting failure under pressure. We saw that Jesus has prophesied of Peter. Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to disown me three times. And that prophecy is coming true just right in the courtyard outside. The rooster is warming up in this scene, right? And the scene shifts back to Peter by the fire where we saw him back at the beginning of this passage. And he's on trial too. Remember, Jesus is on trial before the most important men in Israel, the, the chief, the, the high priest, the Sanhedrin. Um, who is the presiding officer at Peter's trial? There it is. 
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by it. A servant girl. That's it. No power, no authority, no rank, no status. And when she thinks that she might recognize him, he is tripping all over himself to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. The second accusation is just like the first one, except she gathers more people, so the stakes are kind of raised a little bit more. And then by the third accusation, we're told that, G- that, uh, that Peter says this. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. It may mean here, among other things, that he's using crude language. Even worse, it might mean that he is um, saying a solemn oath, that he is saying, I, I swear in the name of God, by the gold of the temple, by the gift at the altar, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Whatever he said here, I don't know the fullness of it. We don't have it recorded here. It's maybe not for our ears. We would have winced when we heard this. We might have covered our kids' ears. We're witnessing. Peter's had some bad moments. This is Peter's worst moment. And when the cock crows, somewhere in the midst of of just that heart-dropping feeling that I can imagine him going through, you can picture Peter hearing look at what you has done and there be no forgiveness. Right? How do you deny Christ? Because it's really easy for us to take shots at Peter here, right? Um, what's it look like for you? Peter's exhibit A, but to his credit, he made it this far, right? He made it further than the other guys. He made it as far as the fire. He's followed Jesus when the situation was convenient for him to do so. How do you deny him? We can get honest here. What's great is we can get honest about this. We're invited to get honest about this because Jesus' number one man absolutely tanked it. And maybe that gives us permission to be a lot more honest about our sin, about the way that we deny Christ. I love the way that a guy named um, James Edwards challenges us. He says, Peter's example is a warning to disciples, then and now, that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. So for a moment, let's just get honest about, about those moments. For starters, Peter thought that he wasn't capable of denying Christ. He was trusting in his own capacities. Where do you put more weight on your own moral performance or your own capacity or your own self-dependence? I think that <laughs> the, the most dangerous sins to us are probably the ones that we don't think we're capable of committing. Peter didn't think he was capable of this one. Because we're trying, in those moments, we're trying to live on our own resolve, we're trying to live on our own good intentions or our own promises, our own vows, instead of trusting in Christ to be the strength behind those vows and those promises and those convictions. And so we deny Christ when we work under our own strength. We also deny him when we we fear our own circumstances. Uh, We fear circumstances more than we fear him. Or when we choose to remain silent where we, we know that we probably should have spoken up. Or, or when we save aside that one sin that we just really don't want Jesus to deal with quite yet. Or when we're not willing to um, forgive as we've been forgiven. And I think, honestly, sometimes we can deny Christ simply, just like Peter, by just not wanting to stand out. Just wanting to keep a low profile. Um, I cannonballed into a Peter moment in, in seminary. Um, 
I'm in an Old Testament class, and uh, we're, we're going through the book of, of Esther. And uh, what you need to know, this class has got about 90 people in it, and uh, there's a balcony in the back of the classroom, and I'm sitting in the, in the front row of the balcony, so I'm kind of got this, I can picture exactly where I was sitting when this happened, right? Um, and the professor is making a point about the book of Esther that um, God is not explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther. I don't know if you know that of 66 books of the Bible, Esther is the only one where God's not mentioned as a main character. It's fun to read Esther because we see that God is throughout the entire thing, like his sovereign hand is behind the scenes, but he's not mentioned by name. And what's cool about that, the professor asks, um, why might that actually be more true to life for us? That God's not the voice in the story, but he's behind the scenes all, all over the place, right? So uh, middle of the front row of the balcony, my hand goes up, and I answer the question, and I say, you know, um, in most of the rest of the Bible, we, we see people actually interacting and hearing the voice of God, and that's not as common today. That's how I said it. That's not as common today. And the professor looks at me a little quizzically, and he said, not as common? He said, um, do you believe that people... Kevin still hear the voice of God today. And I got to be honest, all eyes in the room at this point, like everybody, I'm looking down and they're all looking up at me. Like Rick Harper's down there. He's looking up at me, right? So Matt Brown's over here. Who's who of seminary students and they're all staring at me. I'm sure all the eyes in the balcony behind me are also, I just feel like I'm smack in the center of the room, right? Here's the thing. Talk to me later if you want to hear the, the details of this one, but I'll just say this. Uh, uh, although I believe that we, we hear from God all the time in so many ways that he communicates with us and he speaks to us, and I can even point to several times where, I just, you, know, where you just feel that, that heavy impression of God just really giving you exactly what you need in that moment and speaking to you. Guys, there was one time in my life, only one, where I, I could say, as best as I could describe it, I heard God's voice um, with my ears. Uh, it, it wasn't less than that, but it, uh, it, it, it was more than that, but it wasn't less than that. I don't know how else to describe it than that. And um, for the record, it wasn't because I, I was at some higher plane of consciousness with the Lord. It was because I was a dumb college student who needed a two-by-four upside the head to get my attention, and that's what God did. But I didn't know in that seminary classroom moment here, as the second question is coming to me, I didn't know how to, how to say all that, Right? And people were kind of looking at me funny. And so I just said, um, well, I, it's not common. See, that's a safe answer. You don't want your friends to think that you've gone charismatic on them. So you just say, well, it's not that common, right? <laughs> two questions, two answers. You following me so far? Third question, as the professor is still digging, he's just looking at me like, what are you trying to say? And he says, Kevin, have you heard the voice of God And in front of 90 people, I said, no. Guys, immediately, I'm not kidding, my mind went immediately to this passage. I I, I could hear the cock crow, right? Three questions, three answers. I didn't hear anything the professor said for the rest of the class. For months after that, I just kept that to myself. I didn't know what to do with it. I finally went back to the professor and I I confessed to him what had happened. He didn't even remember it. I confessed to him what had happened and I said, this is the answer that I wanted to give. You know, (laughs) what do you think? Guys, um, at least Peter was afraid of soldiers. I denied Christ in front of a bunch of seminary students, right? (laughs) Like future church leaders, these are not threatening people, right? (laughs) 
Peter was afraid, legitimately afraid of getting arrested, not wanting there to be four crosses the next day, right? He, it says in John that, that the guy whose ear Peter cut off, his cousin was around the fire. He was there, right? So Peter has legitimate reason to be scared. I was just scared of my own reputation. When Jesus is inconvenient to our reputation or our decisions or our pride or our self-direction or self-promotion or whatever it is, then those are the places where I think we need to remember the rooster. We need to hear the rooster. So two trials, two interrogations, right? One of them um, dies, but he finishes his mission. The other one, um, he escapes, but at the cost of his integrity. But we need to remember, as I said before, and let's just end here, that Mark intentionally put these two stories together to draw attention to something. He wants to encourage us to interpret the outer story in light of the inner story. He wants us to see failure under grace. Remember we said throughout the series that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is Peter's eyewitness account of the events of, uh, of the passion, of the events of Christ's life, all of that, right? It's, so uh, Mark interviewed Peter, hung out with Peter, traveled with Peter. He got the story from Peter. That means that not only does Mark want you to see how this story in the middle interprets Peter's failure, Peter wants you to see this. Peter the failure wants you to see how the story in the middle is big enough for his failure. Can you take, you know, I mentioned a a few ways in which we might deny Christ, and if any of those arrows hit, just take one of them, and if you would, just whatever hit home, just hold it up to one of two possible scenarios, okay? Scenario one sounds like this. It's a whisper in your ear, and it says, look at what you has done, and there be no forgiveness. That's the troggle humper whispering in your ear. That is guilt and it's dead end shame and it's the worst attack on a human soul. But scenario two is to discover what Peter discovered to be true because this threefold denial that we see here is actually act two of a three-act play. You saw act one last week. Rick was talking about this. Do you remember uh, the disciples are being asked not to fall asleep while Jesus is praying, and there's three of the guys, the most confident guys, Peter, James, and John, and how many times do they fall asleep? Right? It's not a denial, but it's certainly a great setup for one. Then we get here to Act 2, the passage that we've just looked at, and we've got Peter swearing in front of servant girls and soldiers, and without a doubt, the worst night of of Peter's life, but that is not the end of the story. Act 3 happens in John 21, and we, this is so cool, we are back at a fire again. Jesus takes Peter right back to a fire. The disciples have just had breakfast around a fire with the risen Christ. And when it's over, Jesus says this. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is Peter's reinstatement. He will leave this campfire a lot differently than he left the first one. He will leave this campfire new and forgiven and whole Why does Jesus ask him that question three times? 
Do you get it? It's beautiful. Around the second fire, there is forgiveness for every word that was spoken at the first one. For every, I don't know the man, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to say all over again, Lord, I love you. And when we take that back into Act 2, this passage we've just looked at, we understand what that forgiveness cost because we see it in, at the same moment, at the same address. Peter was sinning and Jesus was paying for it. Every denouncement of Peter's is spit in the face of Jesus. He's taking it. So I picture maybe Peter wants to say to us, look, as he puts this story right in the middle of his, he says, look, when I was at the very moment when I was faithless, he was faithful. While I was trying to bail out, he was making the good confession. And he was doing that for me, like every weakness that this moment revealed in me, my lying and fear and cowardice and pride and denial, he was marching to a cross to pay for it in that moment. Church, look at what you has done. And there is amazing forgiveness. This, the sinless one took your place. God sat in the dock for you. He sat in the seat of the judged. Instead of the judge, he took your place. He was treated like you deserved. And then that's amazing. He was treated like you deserved. So that now you can be treated like he deserves. Think about that for a moment as a believer, that you are treated as he deserves. That so allows us to get honest about our sin because we so believe in grace. And so we get to celebrate that around the table. There's a table moment for us again this morning, and I want you to think of it, if you could, this morning as this is a campfire. This is us around breakfast. This is us around a meal with a resurrected and forgiving Savior. This is a grace-filled meal. We get serious about our sin when we come here, right? We get serious about the places that we've denied him, the ways we've ignored him or minimized him or sinned against him. All sin is really denying Christ. I think David got it right when he said to the Lord, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. But we realize that as we confess our sin that for every I don't know the man this is an opportunity for us to say all over again, Lord, I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Let's pray. Father, you invite us to a meal, a foretaste of a feast. And we pray, Lord, that you would use these common things, bread and juice, to to picture something extraordinary in us and to sign and to seal the covenant of grace that we find ourselves in by by faith that's not of ourselves, but you're a gift from you. And so, Lord, here we are, um, not of our own capacity, um, but purely by your invitation. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us and give us um, the, the joy of deep forgiveness and the opportunity to say all over again, Lord, you know all things. We love you. And pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this is not a Presbyterian table. It's not Stonebridge's table. It's the Lord's table. That means that if you belong to Christ, you're invited to come and and eat. Um, What we mean by that is, do you understand that Jesus took your place so that you could take his? That, That he died for your sins so that you could be seen righteous. 
his righteousness. If that doesn't make sense, um, if, if that's not something you've ever done, then we would say don't take these elements because they're actually meant to be a picture of something. They're meant to be a, a picture of faith. They don't make faith. They picture faith that's already there. And so it would be kind of an empty exercise, but it's not empty if you take the moment instead to think about what this might mean for you to put your trust in Christ. That would be such a great way to savor this moment. Pass the elements by, but get, do your business with the Lord and talk to him about it. And at the end, if you've got some questions, you can talk to someone else and we can pray with you. But um, guys, it's a table for sinners. Uh, it's a table for broken people. It's a table for deniers. It's a table that we have the opportunity to come to him all over again and say, I'm yours. I love you, Lord. And so we encourage you to come. The way we're gonna do this uh, when the ushers come forward, uh, as we've done just a couple weeks ago, we're gonna pass out the bread to uh, take it as you're led, just as a personal reminder of what he's done for you individually. When we pass the cup out, will you hang on to that? We're gonna do that together, a uh, reminder that we're all, uh, we're all proclaiming this as one, that we're part of something bigger than just the individual. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat of this bread, we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ushers, come forward.